Hey Brianna, this is Dad. My God, how I miss you. I miss your laugh. I miss your corny jokes. I miss your smile. I miss your attitude. I miss your life. If I had one thing that I would tell you is I'm sorry that I let you down. I'm sorry. I trusted someone else to take care of you. This is Michigan Crime Stories, and I'm Jessica Shepard. You found part one of our four-part season, What Happened to Brianna? I'm going to let MLive investigative reporter Gus Burns take you into this story in just a moment. But before that, I have a brief warning. The content in this season is at times very graphic. The entire season deals with a topic that is not suitable for sensitive listeners, including children. There will be adult language and very graphic descriptions of a possible crime scene. There will be mentions of death, suicide, and sexual assault. We advise listeners to consider these elements before diving in here. Here's Gus. There's a photo of two little girls napping on a mattress next to dirty white walls in Detroit. It must be warm out. Neither of their shirts have sleeves. They just hairs in a bun. Brianna's braids are tied back and clipped with yellow, green, and red barrettes. There are no sheets on the mattress, no pillowcases, no blanket visible. Deja has her right arm sprawled out on her side, atop a pillow. Brianna, Deja's best friend and half-sister, just one year older, is wrapped into herself, her right arm hugging her own left shoulder. They look peaceful. At the time, it felt like the two inseparable sisters would be together forever, sharing life. And life was far from perfect. But no matter what, at least they always had each other, and that was comforting. But it was also fleeting. In a few short years, Brianna would suffer a violent death, alone in a vacant Detroit apartment. Fourteen years have now passed, but the unanswered questions, suspicions, and the vacancy in Deja's heart remain. Below the photo of the two sleeping girls, there's a Facebook message that Deja wrote on November 5th, 2020. God made me a strong woman, and I never let anyone see me cry. But I know you see your little sister breaking down. I'm heartbroken so heartbroken, and I just want you to know I would give my life for yours. I am so sorry, and sis, I never asked you for anything, but I need some closure. I literally lost my best friend. I can't stop crying. I'm tired of acting like I'm okay, when deep inside my soul cries, bro. And it's nothing I can do, so I ask God to let you know I love you, and I always will until I see you again. Brianna's father, Leonard Cobb, responded to that post. Sweetheart, I don't speak to you as much as I want to, but my pain and anger is unreal. I cry and pray for answers all the time. I still don't believe she did this to herself, and I hope the darkness comes to light. Another message came from Brianna's aunt, Malika Sharps. They need to reinvestigate, she wrote. I don't care who gets arrested. I want justice for my niece. It was a hot summer day in Detroit, August 6, 2008. The high that day topped out at 85 degrees. 
but it was cooling down some as 51-year-old Tuscan Park townhomes maintenance worker Jerry Parker made a discovery beginning a story that slowly unraveled over more than a decade, one with chapters that still remain untold. He needed an appliance for a unit he was getting ready for new renters, so he headed for 14192 Riverview, a recently vacated unit that he knew had what he was looking for. The busy townhomes are located in northwest Detroit, and the unit Parker was destined for is located along the fence line of Eliza Howell Park, a long-abandoned park that's split in half by the contaminated Rouge River. Jerry Parker walked through the parking lot near the park and toward the vacant apartment. He looked forward to finishing his task and ending his shift for the day. Little did he know, there was something unexpected waiting for him inside. A window on the east side of the building was shattered. The back door was opened. He entered. Yeah, basically, uh, what I've done, I was turning a unit, and uh, I had to go into uh, this particular unit. I forget the apartment number at the moment. Um, I went in, I was looking for the appliance. And what I can remember, I seen this body, I seen this shape laying on the stairwell. So I went over to approach it, you know, to see where they sleep or whatever. And I, that's when I found that she was, they had laid out on the stairs. And you know, she was dead, unless she had been insane or whatever first. And then they brought her to the unit later they nailed the stairwell. So from that point, that's when I called my boss. Told him, I said, I think you better come over here and look at this. I literally physically seen her laying on the stairs. It's like uh, before whoever, whatever, however it happened, I have no idea. It's like uh, she was insane before she was brought there. You know, I don't, to me and my belief, I don't think she was killed there. I think she was brought there. That's just my belief. Would it surprise you that they said that it was a suicide? No, no. I don't think it was a suicide. They said that she died of asphyxia by hanging. No, she didn't hang there. <laughs> I can tell you that. You know, because there was no rope, no nothing there for her to be hung. There was no ID on the body. Police would later guess she was a young woman, but they didn't really know and didn't really try to find out since there was no crime to investigate. She was lying on the steps with a TV cable cord looped around her neck and some bruising. Clearly, the medical examiner determined with little investigation, this was a suicide. She was Jane Doe. No one came forward looking for her, no friends, no family. It seemed no one cared. No one had reported her missing, and that name, Jane Doe, it stuck. The medical examiner's office tacked on a number, 08-8093, to help distinguish her from the hundreds of other Jane and John Doe's that have come through or remain in the Detroit morgue. Wayne County, where Detroit is located, currently has 262 bodies or remains of people they found no names for. Often they're homeless or transient. Some appear to be homicide victims wrapped in tarps and set ablaze. Others died alone of natural causes, their lives often snuffed out by harsh cold of Michigan winters and trash-filled vacant buildings. Jane Doe 08-8093 was among them now. She lay in a zipped-up body bag in the Wayne County morgue freezer, waiting in vain. No one came forward. No one asked the police where she was. Eventually, they shipped her to a suburban Detroit cemetery. There she lay beneath the earth for three years inside a vault with three other bodies in an unmarked grave. No one came to visit. No one set flowers out above. Grass grew and snow fell for three years as her cheap wood casket, her skin, and organs began to decay, until only a skeleton remained. And then, one spring day in 2012, after years of silence, 
A noisy backhoe rumbled to life and began jabbing at the dirt above. Chains were wrapped around the vault. Jane Doe was pulled to the surface. The casket lid slid off, and for the first time in a long time, light shone on the mystery that brought her here. Rihanna Quiche Sharp was born on Friday, March 24, 1995, to her 17-year-old mother, Sabrina Sharp, who at the time lived in Texarkana, Texas, with her own grandmother. Brianna's mother is still alive and living in Detroit, working as a desk clerk at a Detroit police repo yard. Three of her four living children are grown, and her mother, Cynthia Sharp, with whom she's lived most of her adult life, is in a nursing home. Leonard Cobb, Brianna's 47-year-old father, was one of the closest people in Brianna's life. He's a personal trainer who lives in Pflugerville, Texas, a suburb of Austin, with his wife and six-year-old daughter, Lael. Here's Leonard talking about how he and Sabrina, both talented athletes at the time, met while attending high school in Texarkana, Texas, nearly 28 years ago. Well, we became somewhat of a high school sweethearts of sorts, uh, <laughs> friends, friends of friends that started dating. A friend of mine uh, was dating one of her friends, and so we actually started dating. But the relationship wasn't super serious. Leonard took off for Blinn College in Brenham, Texas, on a track scholarship. With loftier dreams of making the Olympics, and he rarely made the five-hour-plus trek back home. Meanwhile, Sabrina was still back in Texarkana attending high school. Yeah, freshman year of college. I mean, we weren't really dating at the time, but obviously, uh, Brianna was clearly made sometime during that uh, summer break that I had. So we would still be in touch and kind of see each other when I would come in and out of town from college she was nice. She was um, sweet. And we obviously, she ran track also. So that was kind of a part of it. We all, when we were, did sports, obviously back then, you, you traveled and did everything with, you know, the guys and girls did pretty much everything together. So it was more about that. I, you know, she's athletic. So for me, that was, that was attractive. She was a pretty decent athlete. I think she, she did basketball or volleyball. And I know for sure uh, she ran track. So it was kind of, for me, that was the, that was easy. You know, it was it was it was familiar. Based on Brianna's March nineteen ninety five birth date, it's likely that Leonard impregnated Sabrina before heading off to college in the fall of nineteen ninety four. Leonard had big dreams beyond Texarkana. Other than infrequent trips back home to see family, his life revolved around track field and college coursework. He maintained a top ten ranking in the US for the triple jump, top fifty in the world between nineteen ninety four and two thousand three. Leonard qualified for the World Championships in 1995. The World Championships are the equivalent of the Olympics in non-Olympic years. Communication between him and Sabrina during this time slowed down, but it never entirely stopped. I went home for spring break, March 1995. I called her because I hadn't talked to her in a long time. So I had called her, hey, what's going on? How you doing? I'm fine. Um, she didn't tell me anything. Uh, she was living with uh, one of uh, the ladies that I had known from high school. She was friends with my sister and my brothers. I knew her, but I didn't know a lot, but I knew her. Sabrina, from age 12 to 17, she was neighbors with the person she was now living with. Because Grandma, I think, was like, you got to get out of my house, I guess, because she was pregnant. It's not entirely clear why, but Sabrina spent her early childhood in Detroit with her mother, 
who then sent Sabrina to live with her grandmother in Texarkana during her teen years. So I was like, hey, what's, you know, how's it going? Can I come and see you? Yeah, cool. Where are you living now? I talked to your grandmother. You're not there. She said, no, I'm living here. So I went over and I, I'm getting to the door and I see some baby stuff on the outside. I'm thinking that the other lady has had children or something. I walk on the door and they open the door and she's looking kind of groggy and, and I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? She said, oh, nothing. And her lady's name, she was telling her name is Donna. She comes out of the back room. She said, girl, stop lying. She just had a baby. And I was like, stop playing. I'm thinking she's joking. I said, but I'm, I'm in the house now. And I'm seeing a crib. I'm seeing diapers. I'm seeing bottles. And, and I said, are you serious? She said, yeah, I just had a baby. I said, where is she? Or he? She said, she's a girl. I saw pink, but I didn't want to assume. I saw she's a girl. Where is she? She's in the back. Let me see her. First question. Is that my daughter? No, not your daughter. I'm the first guy to hold her from what they say at this point. No clue, I'm holding her. Beautiful baby, I stay for a little while, happy. At this point, she tells me who her boyfriend is or who the father is. That other man, the purported father of Brianna, was someone whose name sports fans, and especially Major League Baseball fans, may recognize. Craig Monroe. He grew up in Texarkana and played in the MLB from 2001 to 2009. Six of those seasons were spent with the Detroit Tigers, and he's now a Detroit Tigers studio analyst and reporter with Bally Sports Detroit. While my efforts to speak with Craig Monroe have failed, I was able to speak with his father. My name is Clifford Pearson. I live in I live in Texarkana, Texas. I uh, I'm a preacher. Uh, we we you know, things we do we we go to church and and just try to love people. You know we work every day and, and that's what we do. That's what our life is consisted of. Uh, I'm married, been married 33 years. My wife is Cynthia. Uh, my son has been the father of Brianna, and he was a baseball player, and he wanted to make things make sure things was right for his parents, child support and stuff like that. So uh, he asked for a, a, a DNA test on the baby. And at that time, we we had started keeping Brianna at our house. She might have been possibly three months old when she first started coming with us. Uh, and the way, we would, the way we would do that right there, uh, I would go to work, my wife would go to work, and what we would do in the evening time when we got off, we would go and pick her up from her mother, which is Sabrina, and they would get up that morning, go to work, and drop her back off at her mother. And when we got off from work, we'd go back by there and get her. And, uh, and every now and then, uh, on the, or maybe on a Saturday or something, or maybe a, a little while on a Sunday, uh, her mother would keep her just for a little while, and then we would go back and get her. But most of the time, I could just probably just well say, uh, overall, over a period of time, I could say, she was really with us six days a week. For the first nearly three years of Brianna's life, Clifford Pearson said he and his wife were the most consistent caretakers of Brianna. They treated her as if, and believed, they were her grandparents. And Leonard, after that brief trip when he held Brianna during spring break 1995, 
left town believing he wasn't the father. Although in hindsight, he said he had a hunch. I asked her over and over, whose baby is this? Whose baby is this? I told him this. Whose baby is this? This is not your baby. Don't worry about it. It's not your concern. It's not your baby. Don't worry about it. It's not your concern. All right. Well, I mean, I stayed for a while and played with her. She was less than a week old. I left. Went back to school. And that was in 95. I couldn't tell by looking, but I had a feeling. But if you're telling me it's not, I'm not going to keep asking if you're not going to tell me the truth. So I'm like, all right, cool. So again, I go back to school and she's a senior in high school at this point. Or she should, she's almost finished with high school. And he is a senior in high school. Now, he is a baseball player and a really good baseball player. I don't know if it was because they thought he would be more beneficial to be named the dad because he was getting drafted, but also getting scholarships to go play college. That come and go. The summer of 96, I mean, the winter of 96 comes and Christmas is getting ready and my mom calls me and she has a conversation about it. And I tell her, I have no idea what she's talking about. She said, do you remember Sabrina? Of course, yes, I remember Sabrina. So you know she had a baby? I said, yeah, I talked to her about that baby. And I told, I, when I talked to her, I went to go see her. I said, you don't remember when I told you? She said, yes, I remember. I said, I don't understand what you're saying. So I talked to her and she told me that was not my kid. She said, well, she lied to you. I said, she told me that was Craig's baby. Well, yeah, they did a DNA test. <laughs> I said, why the hell would they do that? Well, he's getting drafted to play pro baseball. And mom and dad wanted to make sure there was his kid before because he knew about me, but they didn't. So Craig knew that she was still friends with me, but he didn't know that we had any sexual contact or whatever. Through athletics, Leonard Cobb knew Craig Monroe. And Texarkana, despite having a population near 35,000, is pretty tight-knit. Craig Monroe's father also knew Leonard Cobb's mother. But like I said, after we found out that, that the baby wasn't, wasn't his, we didn't change, our heart didn't change about the love that we had for the baby because he, he had been with us so long, you know. So he told me who, who was the father of the baby. I said, okay, then. And I pondered in my mind, I pondered in my mind maybe a couple of months, and I finally made the decision, you know, trying to do the right thing. Uh, so I made the decision to to go to Leonard's mom. The first real time Leonard was able to spend with his daughter was over a three week Christmas break heading into 1997. I found out and I came home. My mom called Clifford and uh, he uh, said that he would bring her to our house to just kind of let her be around us because obviously he's hurt. He's helped raise his child. She's a year and a half and come to find out. But, I mean, clearly we knew that we would not remove her from their life because it's not their fault that, you know, she didn't tell the truth. So he brought her to our house, and we just kind of hung out for a little bit, and he was explaining to her. Obviously, she's almost two years old, but she wasn't really understanding. And I I remember her saying, you know, asking for uh, Craig, you know, where's where's Craig? And so he was like, this is your dad. And then I'm just still befuddled because I'm like two years that one, I missed out two years that our family missed out on, on her. And so it just kind of went, kind of went that way for the time that I was there. She pretty much stayed where with me 
for the, I think it was three weeks or so that I was off for, for break. Oh, yeah, she was definitely a spirited individual. So I could tell she was very independent and she was, when I say fiery, meaning she was definitely, if she didn't want to do anything, she would, she would not do it. And but I could also tell she she did not trust very easily. After spending three weeks with Brianna, Leonard returned to college, and Craig Monroe's parents continued taking care of Brianna when Sabrina couldn't. So she at that time she really didn't she really didn't have a lot of time for the baby. So she was glad uh, that we we took up we took the baby and, and took care of her. This arrangement continued with Leonard visiting from college when he could on his rear breaks for another year. Leonard's mom offered to care for Brianna when needed, but according to Leonard, Sabrina said no. In the meantime, Sabrina had given birth to two more children, a girl and a boy. So a year later, I mean, I've obviously seen her, talk to her, go back and forth during the times that I have. I go visit her again. Now she has three. Now she has the brother. At that point, she, I go and visit her, and she says, I'm moving back to Detroit. I say, well, that's not very fair well i have all these kids and i can't do this by myself and she's with none of the fathers so you're taking my daughter now whom i don't even know back to detroit where you've never been before where i have never and, and none of them had ever been before now she's three and a half almost four i think at this point i had no choice because I'm still in college, so I can't really fight it. There's really not much I can do. Sabrina's adolescence was spent in Texarkana, but most of her family still lived in Detroit, including her brother, sister, and mother. So Brianna was taken from the only life she knew in what Clifford Pearson described as old and slow Texarkana up to Michigan, the cold winters, and Detroit. Up until she left, and she was right at the front door, three years old. You know, me and my wife had talked about it, said, mm. Maybe we should have forced Sabrina to leave her with us. <laughs> but, you know, you you want to do the right thing. You want the mother to, you know, spend some time with, with her child because she had been, you know, been, been around her just a little. But uh, so that's why come we didn't ask her, won't you just let us keep her, keep her here with us? Brianna, her brother, sister, and mother moved to Detroit when Brianna was about three. But it wasn't long before Sabrina realized she had more than she could handle, being a 20-something mother with three young children, according to Leonard. So he made her an offer. So... Um, I'm finishing college. I'm getting, I'm, I got a job. We're still talking. She's telling her, oh, she's having all kinds of problems. So now she's, in my opinion, she grew up faster than she needed to. She was never a kid, per se. I asked her to send her here. Let me have her. Let me take care of her. I'm single. I have no girlfriend. I'm good with that. Let me have her. Let me raise her. See how it goes. So when she comes here, Obviously, again, I know her, but I don't know her. She gets here and she she can't really speak English at all at five years old. Her dialect was horrible to say the least. Like, so she sounded like she did when she was two years old. And she said, and that she, so she didn't know ABC, she didn't know anything. After being with me for a couple of years, during the summer, her mom would want her back so that she can still know her siblings. I'm okay with that. Okay, I might need a break. I've had her for the nine months. No problem. Send her back, she come back. And every time she comes back, I'm noticing more and more degression of stealing, lying, and all of these things are starting to happen. Rihanna was in a more stable environment now, 
one where she could receive one-on-one attention, and teachers eventually noticed how intelligent she was. Rihanna at one point was placed in gifted classes, but soon after removed due to bad behavior. She was living in a very different world than her life in Detroit. Her siblings were gone, and so were her mother and grandmother, who she'd spent the last two years with. Now she lived in an apartment with her dad, who she barely knew, in a town she'd only visited, and had a third roommate, Leonard's best friend, Ivan Wagner. She was, she was talkative, um, athletic, loved sports, you know, she had a great personality, very, very smart young lady, but, but you know, at the same time, you know, she was, in, in my words, still, still a little troubled from the transition. Ivan Wagner references transition, but it seems like Brianna's entire life was a transition. By age six, she'd been in at least four different homes with just as many different parental figures. With the move to Austin, so began a six-year stint in Brianna's life that was not easy for her or for Leonard, but one that had loving moments, fun, bonding, and happy times. Some of Leonard's happy memories involved taking his daughter to University of Texas Longhorns basketball games or other sporting events, and visiting their surrogate family, a.k.a. Ivan Wagner's family, in San Antonio for barbecues or holiday get-togethers, Brianna and Leonard loved blasting music throughout the house. Brianna especially liked to listen to rap music. And Leonard speaks with pride about Brianna's immense love of basketball and how good she was getting. Even though Brianna lived with Leonard in Austin during the school year, most summers were spent back in Detroit with her siblings, mother, grandma. Brianna felt rejected by her mother. She wanted her mother's affection and attention, but Sabrina often didn't provide it, according to Brianna's sister. It's almost like Brianna became an outsider in her own family and it was only compounded by her bad behavior, acting out, lying, and stealing. Here's Deja, Brianna's half-sister, who's only a year younger. They were best friends, and you'll hear more from Deja later in this podcast series. I wasn't treated the best either, but she definitely was treated the worst, honestly, and I don't know why. Brianna would, she would stand up for herself, and that's really all I can say. I won't say that she was just a bad kid because she wasn't, but like if if she's being mistreated, and I can honestly tell you, like, looking out on the outside, looking at how they treated her, I do feel like she was treated different. One of the odd behaviors that followed Brianna throughout her life is compulsive stealing. She didn't shoplift, but took from people she knew. Leonard said it began when she was a toddler and was already part of her behavior patterns by the time she came to live with him. It started with snacks. She would steal candy. She'd steal a watch. She would steal money from myself. If I had cash laying around, she would, it would be gone. And she's going to be like, okay, we're the only two people that live in this house. Where do you think is gone? So she would steal from friends of ours, friends of hers, people that she considered sisters and brothers. It was just, it wasn't even a thought. It was just take it. So again, I, I akin all of that back to how she was raised as a kid, it was the survival mentality. Rihanna's stealing got so bad that Leonard sometimes didn't want to take her to friends' homes when they were invited. I tried everything, but I think at the time I was making like 37000 so I didn't qualify to get any assistance. I, would, I, I asked, uh, even the cops that were coming around, I would ask them, is there a scare straight program? Is there any kind of programs that I could put her in that would kind of help and, and everybody would tell me no. Nope. The tension between Leonard and Brianna heightened as she got older. Eventually got to the point where she wasn't even in class anymore. They put her in the uh, ISS, the in-school suspension class, because she couldn't be in regular class. Now, they gave her all the homework, no problem. 
all good grades. <laughs> I mean, she didn't ever try. She was too smart for her own good, and she could manipulate people very well. She couldn't manipulate me because I knew her, but her, her teachers would fall for it every time. So I spanked her. Yes, I did. I would pop her on her butt. I would spank her on her butt. She got to the point where she would tell them that I was abusing her. I've had CPS come here to do two interviews to check out the house to make sure. And they said, you're fine. You are allowed to spank your kid as long as it's on the bottom and not da 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 da. But in her eyes, she was trying to get me in trouble for doing something she knew she was doing. I filed public records requests with the police agencies and child protective services to try and find out what I could about those times Brianna reported Leonard for abuse. The Child Protective Services records aren't public. I did identify one Austin police report related to a child abuse investigation, but police wouldn't release it due to confidentiality reasons. I was told by the department's public information officer that there wasn't much to it, and not enough to pursue any criminal charges. Beyond that, there were two police reports related to Brianna running away from the home, a problem that escalated in 2008 when Brianna was 12 going on 13. One of those times Brianna disappeared is especially memorable to Leonard. Leonard learned that his surrogate brother, Ivan Wagner's brother, suffered an aneurysm after playing basketball. He showed some improvement initially, but a couple days later took a turn for the worse. He was now brain dead and on life support. He wasn't coming back. It was time to say goodbye. I leave work. I come home. She's gone. Now, I wasn't gone more than an hour. So now I'm livid because we need to get down here he's my i've known that i knew that kid since he was 12 years old so to me he's my brother also so i'm pissed and so she's assuming it's about time for me to get home about 30 minutes later so she comes i'm out standing outside the whole time just waiting she comes running up and she sees me and she freezes <clears throat> i'm sorry i said do you understand how pissed I am. And so I, we have this discussion. I didn't yell at her because I knew I was going to yell at her in, in anger. But I explained the situation to her. I said, while you're away, your uncle in San Antonio is dying. Well, what, you talk, what happened to him? And so now we're, we're on our way to San Antonio. So we get to San Antonio. We walk in the room. She's obviously right by my side. She's crying. Now I'm going to cry. Uh, his mom says she looks back and realizes that because we were the last people to come and see him. And the last people to get in the room to see it. Sorry. So she looks up at me and says, we got to say bye to your brother. So, so she hugs me and I hug him and kiss him. And Brianna had to do the same thing and she, she can't. She just, she can't do it. So she runs out of the room and eventually they pull the plug on every, you know, he passes. And the like a month and a half later, we go through the same scenario. Leonard was already feeling like the situation with Brianna was getting out of control. But the next time she ran away, shortly after her 13th birthday, was the last straw. She left home on a Friday, didn't return until Monday morning. At this point, I realize I can't do this by myself. It's just impossible. So in my head, I call her mom. I say, listen, I want her here i need her here but being a single dad i have no family here other than my best friend and at this point he had uh, got a job in dallas so now he lives in dallas now i am truly by myself with her and i was fine with that until 
these things started happening. Because I can't, and there's no one that can come and check on her. There's no one that can do anything. So I call her mom and I say, I need your help. So mid-April, I get her a ticket, send her home, and pretty much the rest is history. That decision to send Brianna to Detroit is one that sticks with Leonard to this day. He never imagined that when he watched Brianna's braided hair bob away toward that airplane, that it might be for the very last time. I would have sacrificed or suffered and called the police every time. I'd rather have done that knowing that I tried instead of knowing no one tried and she just ended up a Jane Doe somewhere. We have released all four episodes on this story at the same time. So if you'd like, go ahead and move on to part two right now. Also, make sure to subscribe to Michigan Crime Stories wherever you get podcasts so you will be alerted of future episodes and seasons of the podcast. If you want to speak with Gus about the case highlighted in this season or another crime story, you can contact him by email at fburns at mlive.com. That's F as in Foxtrot, B-U-R-N-S at mlive.com. If you value the work of journalists like Gus, consider becoming an MLive subscriber at mlive.com slash subscribe. If you or someone you know is in a suicidal crisis or emotional distress, the new shortened nationwide number for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is 988. That's right, just three numbers, 988. Thanks for listening to Michigan Crime Stories. We'll see you here at your convenience for part two of What Happened to Brianna.